0: Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, July 1st. I'm coming to you from my home here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. It's a beautiful summer night, and I'm here as always with Brett Walker, who's managing the call behind the scenes, and we are very happy to be with you tonight. Uh, Before I get to the substance of tonight's call, I want to give a shout out again to IntegralLife.com, which is the main international web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking. It's the home of Ken Wilber and his archives. Uh, They host this podcast, for which I'm very grateful. And my work can also be found on my blog, DailyEvolver.com. For those of you who are new to integral theory and integral thinking, or need a refresher or a little crutch or help, you can click the link on the reminder email that you received reminding you of this call. There's a link at the bottom of the email that takes you to a couple charts, one laying out the altitudes of development, which is an important part of integral theory, which states that human beings evolve in. Four quadrants. That is, we evolve in terms of our interiors, individual interiors, our collective interiors, in terms of our bodies and in terms of our society. And that's all explained there. And also that um, we evolve through stages of development, altitudes and quadrant charts there on that link. So, all right, well, let's just get going. Uh, we will take some questions at the end if uh, we have time and you can... Make a comment or a question by raising your hand and by pressing one. And that gets Brett's attention. All right. Well, I guess the big news is that we're out of the World Cup. (laughs) I see that uh, the USA just lost to Belgium and we're now out of the running. But the interesting thing with this World Cup, particularly from an American point of view, is that while this may be a momentary loss, the big big winner is soccer itself. America is now officially smitten. This is the year even I tried <laughs> to watch soccer. I mean, it's pathetic. I, I actually tried watching it today. I taped the game. And uh, I must say it's still like watching an anthill to me. I mean, I just see these guys running around. Uh, but um, you know, my friends and I I was on the phone with a couple of friends, and I, "What's this mean? What's that mean?" But we're trying. And, uh, and I, I think a lot of people are. It's, it's uh, interesting. I saw the numbers that the last game, the U.S. A Portugal game, which was last Sunday, a week ago, 25 million people watched, which is more than the World Series, the American World Series for baseball, American, you know, the championship of baseball, the quintessential American game. And it beat it by 10 million viewers. So this is definitely a where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, a nation lifts its lonely eyes to you moment Uh, because we have been um, clearly, we've fallen in love with soccer and we're out of the game. Uh, There are, of course, some holdouts. When we say 25 million people watched, that means 300 million people didn't. Uh, my favorite is uh, Alexandra Petrie, who wrote a column in the Washington Post this week titled, We Americans who do not care about the World Cup are still in the majority. And she writes, And why should we care? The World Cup is explicitly un-American, since it has the word world in its name, and we have zero chance of winning. <laughs> and she goes on to write, If I wanted to spend 90 minutes watching foreigners beating us up embarrassingly, I would just leaf very slowly through our students' international math and science test results. So that's one perspective on the World Cup. I do have just a couple integral observations about it in general. And that is that, you know, sport is a really important part of human culture and and human reality. It's located generally in the red altitude of development, that is the warrior altitude, but it's civilized by uh, Amber or blue meme in Spiral Dynamics with rules and with uh, safety so that the participants don't die and get killed. But these are actually ways of human beings testing themselves physically young warriors, uh, more and more men and women, but, you know, traditionally men who go out on the battlefield of the playing ground and physically go up against each other. And it's thrilling. It it hits the lower chakras of our energetic bodies. And and it gets us going in a way that is, you know, a few many stages away from real warfare, which is what, of course, we talked about last week with these jihadis, this ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria, calling forth to the young men of the West to come and experience the honor and happiness of, of this great battle of jihad. Well, this is a more civilized version. And we can actually look in sport and even the, the history of, of sports like soccer that originally, <laughs> in the old days, we used to play it with, with the severed head of our enemy. And then we did, played it with the head of a goat. And This is progress. And now, you know, I think there was probably some sack in there in the meantime, but now we have a nice ball. And, you know, this, again, is progress, people. Uh, another thing that we can see from the World Cup is just, a, you know, another example of the world media and how it covers stories like this. And a country, you know, these countries like Brazil and Russia for the Olympics and so forth, they really vie to host an event like this, a big international event, which brings them a lot of international attention and stature. But it's clearly, as we've seen both with Russia and Brazil in these last two big sporting events, uh, it's a mixed blessing. The downside, of course, is that now in our contemporary media world, the flaws get highlighted as much, if not more so, than the achievement? I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, you know, completely absorbed by these dystopian stories about Brazil and how bad they had screwed things up, and about the stadiums being unfinished and the transportation system broken down and rampant criminality, the people up in arms protesting. I mean, the weeks leading up to the games, I would have thought maybe they were going to be called off or they'd be played in the midst of rubble and bulldozers. I didn't know what was going to happen. Then, all of a sudden, <laughs> the story switched from apocalypse to let the games begin. And then, all of a sudden, we're watching these games in these gleaming stadiums and it's well lit and I don't everybody seems clean and well scrubbed and the games are happening. And it's just... An example of how basically the media, which is the human condition writ large, moves from topic to topic. And it's not really about covering these events uh, in the way that we actually think it is in a strange way. And we can blame the media for sensationalizing and being superficial and jumping from story to story and spinning and, you know, making things more exciting. I mean, they actually, their job is to keep our eyeballs glued to their station. Uh, And we can, of course, blame the media as long as we remember that the media is us. And essentially what they do is not really uh, report the news and facts. I mean, they do. What they really do is they tell stories because this is what keeps human beings riveted. we human beings love stories. And we, you know what we love stories about other people, other people in trouble, other people in extremists, ourselves in extremists, what might happen, what's to come. And that is what keeps human beings going. And they're generally, these stories are some morality tale about good guys and bad guys, and like all good storytellers of all times, including now, I mean you think of your best storyteller friend, uh, we fit the facts and spin them and make things more vivid and interesting and impactful any way we can. And so the story that was told of Brazil with this World Cup was of a country who had fundamentally entered the stage of development of modernity. So it was becoming a modern country with technology and higher living standards and highways and corporations and that sort of thing. But all of this had happened without sufficient regard for the disadvantaged, the disaffected, the poor uh, people of the society. And this is typical about how modernity enters cultures. So, you know, there was an uprising. There was protests, protests. hundreds of thousands of people in the weeks before, a million people about a year ago in Brazil. This really caused the world to pay attention to this story. And the protests now have dwindled because it seems that even the rebels in Brazil have World Cup fever. But they've made their point. Brazil, the world, has seen something that can't be unseen, And that's really important because to see is to care. And to care is to ultimately act. And this is just part of the trajectory of human moral development. And that's one of the reasons that integral theory in general stresses the idea that one of the leading lines of development, one of the ways that we evolve, sort of the leading edge of our evolution is a line of development we call the cognitive line. And cognition, in this case, is defined very simply, and I think elegantly, and that is, what are you able to see? It's not about how you can do logic. It's not about how you can remember. It's not about how you can do past tests. It's about what are you actually able to see in that Google map? How high is your resolution? In the case of Brazil... Are you even able to see the poor people there? Are you able to see the important, crucial reasons why they are poor that are not their fault? Are you able to see that that makes their poverty society's responsibility, that there's aspects of their situation that aren't their fault? Do you see that that makes that your responsibility? Can you see that their poverty is your poverty? These are all markers on stages of moral development. And so this is, you know, what's good. I mean, we can say the media, you know, sensationalized and they went one way and they went the other, but this is what we do. Because we want to tell these stories um, in a way that helps us see reality more deeply and care about it and ultimately do something about it. That's that wonderful quote from Martin Luther King. That the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice. So I am officially a soccer fan, even though I have no idea how it's played, but I'm working on it. All right. So let's turn our attention to another story. And this is something I wanted to focus on this week because I did a really interesting interview late last week with... Uh, one of my integral friends from the Ukraine, Oleg Lenitsky. And Oleg is um, a philosopher. He's he's a a writer, a thinker of integral theory for a long time, part of the community. And he has given us insight into the interior of the Ukrainian view and and actually the Russian view and, and the view of this conflict between the Ukraine and Russia that is really happening in real time and this is another example of red I mean this is a struggle uh, between in this case two countries but it's not on the playing field uh, some of it is actually on the battlefield now fortunately not that much in the in the scheme of things and the, certainly the you know if we look at warfare on and, and, and the world and in history it's pretty small but it's happening. And we've been following it on the Daily Evolver. And there's been a lot that's happened in the last couple of weeks. In fact, the tables have been turned kind of interestingly. And I don't want to talk too much about the geopolitics. But uh, I do want to just sort of bring you up to date that, of course, they had an election. And they have a new president in the Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. He's the chocolate king. He's the um, you know, one of the uh, corporate business people who you know clearly has some charisma. He won the election and uh, appears to have the support of the parliament and the majority of the people. And he has gone ahead a couple days ago and signed the association agreement between the Ukraine and the European Union, which is a trade agreement that, you know, depending on who you're talking to, significantly favors Europe over Russia in trade and so forth, and was the precipitating event Uh, to ousting the former president six months ago, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, Viktor Yanukovych being more aligned with Russia, refusing to sign the agreement, which kicked off basically a modernist rebellion in the Ukraine, a a rebellion of people who really wanted to be more associated with the West and the EU. And of course, now this signing uh, is a declaration uh, that uh, Ukraine is tilting towards the West uh, and away from the East, primarily Russia, and uh, uh, Poroshenko also ended the ceasefire against the Russian insurgents who were occupying some buildings and pockets of the country and is taking military action against them. Now, up to now, the story has been mainly of Russia's relatively, again, soft occupation of the Crimea. But the fear was that Russia would want to push further the U- to Ukraine. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, he appears to have sort of stood down on that but these last couple of days are provocation from the Ukraine. So, again, these this is happening in real time in our world. It matters, and to know is to care. So we want to pay attention to these things, and that's why I talked to um, uh, Oleg. And one of the things that Oleg, one of the sort of cases that Oleg makes, is that this conflict in the Ukraine. Is really a struggle within the soul of the Ukrainian people as to whether or not they're going to be more Eastern or more Western, and it's this this soul of Easternness and Westernness. What is that? That is, I think, really interesting from an integral perspective. Now, I'm going to be posting the whole talk with Oleg, which I think, I think 45 minutes or so, in the next couple of days. But I'm going to play a segment here tonight about four and a half minutes that gets to the issue of what I just said, what that east and west soul is. You know, what are they afraid of? What are we afraid of? What do we want? What what do they want? Uh, And, um, you know, so that we can gain some insight into uh, what's happening there. So, again, Oleg Lenitsky, my friend from the Ukraine, uh, from a discussion last Thursday, four and a half minutes, Brett, turn it on and I'll join you back in four and a half minutes
1: my personal opinion about uh, what happens now here is that it is not actually a conflict between Ukraine and Russia exclusively uh, this is for me as far as I can judge as far as I can see it is more a conflict between Eastern and Western uh, mentalities because Ukraine is uh, a kind of uh, in the middle of two civilizations between Asia and Europe, and people here um, during last years they decide what kind of thinking is more close and more native to them, and it is the main question for people here uh, and especially for the last half year. Uh, main question is: uh, Do I want to? Be more like Europeans, or I, I want to stay with Russians and be, uh, and uh, am I mentally more close to, to Russian people and to Asia? And uh, many people here talk about it all the time. Really? What is good? Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so,
0: so, Oleg, let me ask you could you describe yeah. for us what you see as the difference between the two? The, Western and the, the Western and
1: the Eastern. Sure. As far as I can see, people on the East and East. I mean, not only Russia, but also uh, India and uh, different countries that are close. Uh, that are close to our mentality and Vedic cultures, in particular. You know this uh, uh, definition, like. Uh, uh, living by feelings. So, people live by own intuition, uh, they are kind of a little bit more irrational, and people talk a lot about their soul, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can see that uh, um, what we put in this word, word is different. Uh, uh, it has, This work has different meaning, rather than uh, people on the West uh, reading to it. And uh, for, many, for many people uh, here, uh, European and American style of thinking is uh, what they call liberalism. And it is very rational. So Good. people actually yeah. decide whether they want to be more rational and rely on rational minds, on rationality, on uh, pragmatic thinking, um, or they want to stay or to be more irrational, more uh, to rely on feeling, uh, on soul, on intuition, mm-hmm. on God in particular. For example, Western democracy is based on convention. And when someone uh, on the East faced a situation where, where he has to decide, either he sticks to convention or relies on own feelings, many people on the East rely on own feelings, not on conventions. They don't agree to do something that is not in, in concordance with their own feelings. And the same situation like that we have in India, we have on, uh, Nepal, for example, um, uh, in Indonesia or different countries. So if we have agreements between us, Agreement uh, is on the second place, and the feeling inside is on the first place, and it is important for uh, Eastern people and it is important, for example, in Russia. the question between East and West uh, arises uh, when we talk about conflicts. when I have agreement with you, that doesn't correspond to my uh, my own feelings right here and right now. and Western people Often prefer to 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 speak and uh, to to go with uh, conventions, with agreements, uh, uh, with obligations, and so on. And Russian people and Eastern people prefer to go with with own feelings, even if if uh, it is against uh, our agreement. And it is very important uh, uh, distinction.
0: So yeah, this. Sort of conflict between the East and the West is that the East has more of a uh, uh, puts more stock in feeling, in irrationality. uh, In uh, is not based. Things aren't based on convention and agreements as much as they are on feelings. The ideas of liberalism and free market thinking are not necessarily appealing, and the scientific materialism of the West. Uh, From a quadrant standpoint in integral theory, we would say that scientific materialism is where the whole world is reduced to the right-hand quadrants. Uh, Human thought and character and emotion and enthusiasm is reduced to the neuronal activity of uh, cells and, and, and nerve endings and synapses. And that culture is basically a construct around power and that there is uh, basically that all um, culture can be reduced to a struggle between human beings for supremacy. And this is, you know, kind of soulless. And this is one of the problems of moving into modernity in general, and also a particular flavor of the West. And Oleg talks more about that. I actually think the the, uh, call will be more understandable uh, as it's posted without going through this maestro system. So check it out. Uh, one of the things that most struck me was this sense of losing sacredness uh, from an Eastern standpoint as they move towards the West, and and this is one of the things that, that Vladimir Putin talks about, and uh, he's he's seen as kind of a character caricature again from a media standpoint. He's the bad guy, so he plays the role of the bad guy in Western media. But from another perspective, he's somebody who deeply cares about the soul of Russia and about the soul of the East, and he's there to protect it. And from an integral standpoint, we want to understand that. We actually want to see the world from his eyes. And one of the things that is, you know, true of really every culture is that there's a basic sacredness at the center of all cultural identity. It's that special quality of feeling at home, with my people and my land and the motherland and the fatherland, my roots, my history, my my people's cultural karma. And one of the things that I I I bring to this thinking when I, I think about it myself is a teaching by uh, Trampa Rinpoche, who was the Tibetan Buddhist master who founded the Naropa and Shambhala communities here in Boulder. And he taught a Buddhist principle called basic goodness. And it's a really interesting principle uh, that in some ways teaches the polar opposite of what Christianity teaches, which is that we are fallen people, sinful people who need redemption by the Redeemer. Uh, Basic goodness teaches that people are basically loving and basically helpful, and basically uh, good, true and beautiful. And I love this teaching because I feel that it compensates for an overemphasis on the shortcoming of human beings by Western culture in general, Uh, not only in terms of exteriors, in terms of society and technology, but in terms of wisdom and compassion, that there, there actually is growth in the system. And I think it really helps us understand this deep-rooted connection and love we have for our tribes and our clan. And we, and as Integralists, we actually want to feel into that, you know, feel into that red amber, that, that ethnocentric strata of our own minds and bodies that are still online and realize that our cultural identity comes out of this love of our people and the basic goodness of our people. Every culture loves and nurtures its children. Every culture wants to create art and ritual and celebration. Every culture wants warmth and community. And every child is born into this. You know, if they're born into a, you know, at least adequately loving family and community, of course, some children aren't. But if they are, they feel that. And What's also interesting is that no two cultures, no two tribes, really, of all time and space are alike. They're all unique, just as all human beings are. And every tribe has a flavor that is particularly delicious. There is no non-delicious flavors. Um, So, you know... Each is as unique to its own time and space and weather and you know, natural resources, karmas, as a duck is to a hippopotamus. And if we belong to that venerable tribe of the ducks, you know, if that's our tribe, the ducks, we love our duckness. And we love the duckness of our people and the great ducks of our glorious history and our wonderful old grandma duck and grandpa duck. And that is, you know, really, really delicious at the core of our being. So, you know, as we, in these earlier stages, that renders us sort of ethnocentric in the ways that we see other animals, if you will, as being strange, as being the other, as being a potential enemy. But at later stages, uh, as particularly as we move into post-modernity, the stage after modernity, These differences, these cultural differences, become a great source of interest and fascination and celebration. But before, as we move from tribalism to postmodernity, that if you're looking at the levels of altitudes of development, as we move from red amber up to orange and into green, uh, you know, we realize that we have to go through that modern stage. And this is really. One of the challenges is that, in a sense, modernity does really require that we lose our religion. That The purpose of modernity is to wring out of the system superstition, mythology, and to replace it with uh, basically another language, a world language, or some people call it a new religion, and that is science. And science as, is based on you know what could be measured and and tracked and touched and seen uh, it's basically it's based on the exteriors but the good thing is that you know we were talking to Ken Wilber the other night on one of these integral living room calls in fact we're going to uh, uh, play it this Thursday night on the integral living room calls for those of you who are also listening to those and he was talking that one of the you know great achievements of modernity of science is that it creates a world language where we don't have a Christian chemistry or a Hindu chemistry. We just have chemistry and, uh, you know, we have technology which can be shared and used by people no matter what their cultural identity. And this is a huge achievement. This really ties us together in a new way. Uh, but then we, as we move into, um, the the green stage of development, the, the you know more fully into this postmodern stage of development, we begin to really reappreciate the particularity of every culture, uh, and uh, particularly of cultures that are in some danger of being colonized or have been colonized or exploited by these other stages of development, and that's one of Green's jobs. Green comes in. It's really an astonishing achievement of humanity that out of modernity, you know, the stage of development that conquers the world for technology and science comes post-modernity, which is the stage of development that is concerned about the people who have been hurt and left behind. So it's really one of the crowning achievement of the Green Altitude of Development, that it says to, for instance, the cultural imperialists, the colonialists of the amber altitude, stop, you know, the the culture of these people that you're oppressing and enslaving is as valuable and appropriate as yours is. And Green says to the economic imperialists of Orange, who, again, use modern technology, logistics, to exploit the resources uh, and the you know, human resources of these less developed country. Green says stop to them too. But often true of any stage of development that it comes on online, it reifies its realization and kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. And you can see this in green culture. I think a lot of us are in, in the integral movement are sensitive to this. That there's an overemphasis on cultural identity in the green meme. I was just at a conference where there was a, a, a consultant you know, uh, from India who was making the case, first of all, about the colonization of India by the British and the horrors of that. And how the British paid no attention to the, to, you know, the the, the cultures of, that they were, uh, overrunning, and the, the, the interiors of the people, basically, the interiors of the people, the interiors of the culture, and um, how Westerners will really never understand this essential Indianness, that um, is just part of the Indian culture, and this is a, a, a sort of a a. a, a standard Green realization that the essential quality of culture and cultural karma is cannot really be understood by people outside of that culture. And there's absolute truth to that. Um, people at this conference were, as Green often does, grieving the loss of indigenous cultures, such as the aboriginal people of Australia, the Maoris of New Zealand. And it's true. Again, this is an achievement. It's heartbreaking. I I sometimes think of the sadness of the moment that the last woolly mammoth breathed her last breath. Can you imagine? After hundreds of thousands of years of walking the earth, the very last one of the very last clan dies and breathes her last. Or of the half a million year reign of the Neanderthals, And the end of them, where the last Neanderthal breathed his last. And what a, you know, consequential moment that was in history to actually sort of be there. It actually happened. And it's happened to, as we know, over 99% of all species that have ever walked the earth. They're extinct. And certainly that's true of cultures as well. 99 point, God only knows, percent of them are gone. And it is indeed sad. But what is new And what we can actually point to as, you know, sort of a corrective for this is that we now have, for instance, the woolly mammoth cloning project. Uh, And it's a credible endeavor to recreate. uh, New York Times talked about it. Uh, As they said, I'll quote, they said, scientists are taking for the first time, talking for the first time about the old idea of a resurrecting extinct species as if this staple of science fiction is a realistic possibility, saying that a living mammoth could perhaps be regenerated for as little as $10 million. The same technology could be applied to any other extinct species from which one can obtain hair, horn, feathers, and which were went extinct within the last 60,000 years, which is the effective age limit for DNA. And we also have the Neanderthal Genome Project, which is coordinated by the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany, where they've already analyzed 4 billion base pairs of Neanderthal DNA. And I'll leave it to the ethicists of the future as to what should be done with it. But this is really, I don't know if it's cause for celebration, but it's something that we want to notice is that this relentless... Ambition of human beings, you know, in hubris and, you know, we often get blowback. But, you know, the trajectory is long and clear. I mean, we've gone from living in trees to our modern world, uh, and it's a far more uh, sane, civilized, safe uh, and, um, you know, sustainable world, uh, although we, we have problems there, than ever before. I think even of the Maori culture or the Aboriginal cultures. I mean, again, it's sad that any culture sort of fades away, uh, as most have in, in history. But what's new here is that Maori culture, for instance, is a topic of study at every university in New Zealand uh, and many other universities around the world. It's being studied and recorded by teams of anthropologists, ethnologists, musicologists, uh, linguists, uh, experts of all sorts, and I wouldn't be surprised that at some point we're able to download the the juice and the intelligence of the Maori culture into the culture at large. That's what we actually want. That's the post-green project, the post-postmodern project, the integral project, where all of these things come back online, and everything is seen not only for the in the pristine beauty of you know an authentic maori transmission but also the maori transmission is folded spindled and mutilated and mashed up with all kinds of other cultural artifacts from various cultures into completely new and novel forms and that is a beautiful thing And it also points, I I think one of the things that Integral sees that Green doesn't, in terms of particularly his cultural identity piece, is that, you know, cultural identity or one's cultural karma is only one of the many really important flavors that individual human beings come in. I I have my my friend from uh, Sri Lanka, who is an Integral friend, she was born and raised in Sri Lanka, and she says that she has more in common with a modern or green, orange-green altitude American than she would have with a pre-modern Sri Lankan. And, you know, altitude of development actually matters as much, if not more so, than cultural karma. Uh, There's more mutuality, more understanding, more shared world space. And likewise, I share more world space with her as a fellow integralist, in terms of the flexibility, the fecundity of our conversations, the things we laugh about, the things we work towards, talk about, the things we see about each other, the things we reveal about each other, than I do with uh, most of my friends back home. And this is also really consequential in human relationships. Another thing that's consequential in human relationships and in the ways we understand and misunderstand each other is our typology. Uh, I think of the Enneagram and the ways that you know I as a five have difficulty understanding fours and threes and nines. And, you know, the ways that we miss each other, the ways that we're wired differently typologically that are independent of culture. So all of these these things are online. I often think of the great line from Rilke where he said, considering the chasms that divide us, it's a miracle that we can communicate and connect with each other at all. Considering the chasms that divide us human beings, it's a miracle that we can connect with each other at all. And there's truth to that. And yet we do. And the integral enterprise is about really seeing every person you meet as, wow, just wow, a unique expression of God and humanity and the cosmos itself. Uh, unlike any other in all of time and space. And that is a very inspiring view that you know we can really recognize and identify as being uniquely integral and in moving into second tier. So I think uh, we're 45 minutes or so into this. I think, let, let me stop here now. And uh, folks, if you have questions or comments that you'd like to make, press 1. And we will entertain them. So to raise your hand, press one. And um, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to say. Oh, actually, one thing, a little word from our sponsor. Uh, we are announcing the uh, next Integral Living Room, which is in the first week of October. And the Integral Living Room is basically uh, an a event that we have here at Boulder, at the Boulder Integral Center, Uh, Diane Hamilton, Terry Patton and me, Ken Wilber comes for an afternoon, Uh, join with um, people from all over the world who come and the purpose of, it's a long weekend, a Friday through, I think it's the 9th through 10th of October, integrallivingroom.com, you can find it there. And uh, we hang out together and just talk about issues like this. And actually the issue, the topic of the Integral Living Room coming up this October is the Cosmos series by Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's the the, the sort of the pump primer that we're going to use for our conversations and how the the Cosmos series presents basically a third-person scientific view of the universe uh, and how Integral integral can add this sort of first and second person, this interior of the I, the interior of the we, that really, I think, re-enchants the universe uh, as a loving and intelligent space. Uh, so, you know, just that, that. We're talking about the easy stuff again. <laughs> so uh, I see we have some hands up. So uh, let's hear first from Isabel. Isabel, welcome.
2: Hi, good evening again. Uh, coming in late, but enjoying the little bit that I was able to hear. Uh, you know, I work, uh, do a lot of work in uh, sustainability education. And um, so... I'm constantly reminded with uh, the consequences of our behaviours, of our actions, the unintentional part, and trying to be more aware, and so that we can design different products and different ways to do business, etc., etc. But when you were talking about the mammoth, it just was like a pause. I I pressed a pause button in my mind because I said, "Well, no one." Wondered those times And for all the other species that are gone Oh, we shouldn't do that or We shouldn't kill them So I just I don't know, I, I don't have my, my, my thoughts around that But I would be curious to hear How you bring these things together
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, Isabel And it's sort of an integral, uh, or an interesting terrain To look at developmentally Because we can see that of course, early humans uh, caused many species to go extinct and really didn't even understand it. I was just reading an article about the carrier pigeons in the United States, were actually, which were actually edible and were considered the poor man's chicken. And we went from flocks of hundreds of millions. They're actually completely extinct now. That's another animal that they're trying to reconstruct through DNA. Uh, but that's true of, you, you see in Australia, all of the um, flying birds and so forth were killed. It, it, and so uh, early men, th- we have this sort of romantic idea that early tribes had this uh, idea of sustainability. And they actually just, what they did was they used whatever resources they could. They really didn't have a lot of forward thinking. And the good thing was they just didn't have the technology to wreak havoc like we do now, and so we're actually the first uh, stage of development. Really, as as you get into green, that really cares about making uh, species go extinct. Really, even notices because we have a world-centric view. We can actually see these things and count them. This is one of the great sort of achievements of science in this way. So this is progress. Now. Is it progress to reconstitute a a carrier pigeon or a woolly mammoth? I I actually can feel in my own mind body as I I raise that question, that inquiry to myself. um, I'm not, you know, 100% like rah, 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 maybe two cheers for that. Uh, There's something that feels Frankenstein diny in about it. There's something that makes me wonder, what aren't we thinking? Uh, do we really want to play in this territory? But, uh, you know, this is conservative thinking. Uh, I, there's part of me that has the foot in the gas, and there's part of me that has the foot in the brake. And there's that's certainly true of cultures and people within cultures. That's one of the conflicts, one of the polarities that help us, you know, do new things, but not too crazy. And uh, so, you know, one of the things we need to do. This is this is one of the moves that we see as we move from uh, orange modernity to green post-modernity in general. That we move from a uh, an economic system and economic political system really of growth and let's just use resources and make wealth and make stuff and live in bigger houses and have more air conditioning and all of more food and you know, all that good stuff. To a and that's orange modernity to a green ethos of sustainability where the idea is let's create a world that actually can sustain itself in a healthy way uh, and not just continue to exploit resources and people and that's one of the moves we're making as humanity right now and as ken wilbur points out it's probably a horse race here whether we'll be able to really create a sustainable world before we've created uh, in green or postmodernity modernity uh, before we've been able to, uh, before we, you know, don't kill ourselves with the uh, growth mentality of orange modernity. So it's been fun being with you. We'll be back next Tuesday. We'll look at some more of how. The world is turning and how integral arising i really do think that that is my uh, mission here with the daily evolver is to just really point out how in real time we are evolving as a human species and you know as, as a cosmos in, in, in the whole in all uh, four quadrants and uh, you know it's a great adventure so thank you so much and we'll see you next week